0: Section twenty eight of Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. The Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. The Warren Commission Report. By The President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. Chapter 6. Investigation of Possible Conspiracy, Part 5. In April of 1963, Oswald left Fort Worth for New Orleans, where he was later joined by his wife and daughter, and remained until his trip to Mexico City in late September, and his subsequent return to the Dallas-Fort Worth area in early October of 1963. With only minor exceptions, there is no evidence that any member of the Russian-speaking community had further contact with Oswald or his family after April. In New Orleans, Oswald made no attempt to make new Russian-speaking acquaintances for his wife, and there is no evidence that he developed any friendships in that city. Similarly, after the return from New Orleans, there seems to have been no communication between the Oswalds and this group, until the evening of November the 22nd, 1963, when the Dallas police enlisted Ilya Mamatov to serve as an interpreter for them in their questioning of Marina Oswald. George de Mohorenschild and his wife, both of whom speak Russian as well as several other languages, however, did continue to see the Oswalds on occasion, up to about the time Oswald went to New Orleans on April the 24th, 1963. De Mohorenschild was apparently the only Russian-speaking person living in Dallas for whom Oswald had appreciable respect. And this seems to have been true, even though De Mohorenschild helped Marina Oswald leave her husband for a period in November of 1962. In connection with the relations between Oswald and De Mohorenschild, the commission has considered testimony concerning an event which occurred shortly after Oswald shot at General Walker. The de came to Oswald's apartment on Neely Street for the first time on the evening of April the 13th, 1963, apparently to bring an Easter gift for the Oswald child. Mrs. de testified that while Marina Oswald was showing her the apartment, she saw a rifle with a scope in a closet. Mrs. de then told her husband in the presence of the Oswalds that there was a rifle in the closet. Mrs. de mohoren testified that, quote, George, of course, with his sense of humour, Walker was shot a few days ago within that time. He said, did you take a pot shot at Walker by any chance? Unquote. At that point, Mr. de mohoren testified. Oswald, quote, sort of shriveled, you see, when I asked this question, made a peculiar face and changed the expression on his face. Unquote, and remarked that he did target shooting. Marino Oswald testified that the de Mohoren-Schultz came to visit a few days after the Walker incident, and that when de made his reference to Oswald's possibly shooting at Walker, Oswald's quote, face changed. He almost became speechless. Unquote. According to the de Mohoren-Schultz, Mr. de remark was intended as a joke and he had no knowledge of Oswald's involvement in the attack on Walker. Nonetheless, the remark appears to have created an uncomfortable silence, and the de and Schultz left, quote, very soon afterwards, unquote. They never saw either of the Oswalds again. They left in a few days on a trip to New York City, and did not return until after Oswald had gone to New Orleans. A postcard from Oswald to de Mohorin was apparently the only contact they had thereafter. The de Mohorin left in early June for Haiti on a business venture, and they were still residing there at the time they testified on April the 23rd, 1964. Extensive investigation has been conducted into the background of both de Mohorin the investigation has revealed that George de Mohorinshield is a highly individualistic person of varied interests. He was born in the Russian Ukraine in 1911 and fled Russia with his parents in 1921 during the civil disorder following the revolution. He was in a Polish cavalry military academy for eleven and a half years. Later, he studied in Antwerp and attended the University of Liege from which he received a Doctor's Degree in International Commerce in 1928. Soon thereafter, he emigrated to the United States. He became a U.S. citizen in 1949. De and Schilt eventually became interested in oil exploration and production. He entered the University of Texas in 1944 and received a Master's Degree in Petroleum Geology and Petroleum Engineering in 1945. He has since become active as a petroleum engineer throughout the world. In 1960, after the death of his son, he and his wife made an eight-month hike from the United States-Mexican border to Panama over primitive jungle trails. By happenstance, they were in Guatemala City at the time of the Bay of Pigs invasion. A lengthy film and complete written log was prepared by de Morin and, and a report of the trip was made to the U.S. government. Upon arriving in Panama, they journeyed to Haiti, where de Morin eventually became involved in a government-orientated business venture in which he has been engaged continuously since June 1963 until the time of this report. The members of the Dallas-Fort Worth Russian community and others have variously described de Moore and Schilt as eccentric, Outspoken and a strong believer in individual liberties and in the US form of government, but also of the belief that some form of undemocratic government might be best for other peoples. De Mohorenschild frankly admits his provocative personality. Jean De Mohorenschild was born in Harbin, China, of white Russian parents. She left during the war with Japan, coming to New York in 1938, where she became a successful ladies' dress and sportswear apparel designer. She married her present husband in 1959. The Commission's investigation has developed no signs of subversive or disloyal conduct on the part of either of the de Mohorenschilds. Neither the FBI, CIA or any witness contacted by the Commission has provided any information linking the de Mohorenschilds to subversive or extremist organisations nor has there been any evidence linking them in any way with the assassination of President Kennedy. The Commission has also considered closely the relations between the Oswalds and Michael and Ruth Payne of Irving, Texas. The Paynes were not part of the Russian community which has been discussed above. Ruth Payne speaks Russian, however, and for this reason was invited to a party in February of 1963, at which she became acquainted with the Oswalds. The host had met the Oswalds through the de Marina Oswald and Ruth Payne subsequently became quite friendly, and Mrs. Payne provided considerable assistance to the Oswalds. Marina Oswald and her child resided with Ruth Payne for a little over two weeks, while Oswald sought a job in New Orleans in late April and early May 1963. In May, she transported Marina Oswald to New Orleans, paying all the traveling and other expenses. While the Oswalds were in New Orleans, the two women corresponded. Mrs. Payne came to New Orleans in late September and took Marina Oswald and her child to her home in Irving. Since Oswald left for Mexico City promptly after Mrs. Payne and his family departed New Orleans, the commission has considered whether Ruth Payne's trip to New Orleans was undertaken to assist Oswald in this venture. But the evidence is clear that it was not. In her letters to Ruth Payne during the summer of 1963, Marina Oswald confided that she was having continuing difficulties with her husband, and Mrs. Payne urged Marina Oswald to live with her in Irving. The letters of the two women prior to Mrs. Payne's arrival in New Orleans on September twentieth, 1963, however, contain no mention that Oswald was planning a trip to Mexico City or elsewhere. In New Orleans, Mrs. Payne was told by Oswald that he planned to seek employment in Houston or perhaps Philadelphia. Though Marina Oswald knew this to be false, she testified that she joined in this deception. At no time during the entire weekend was Mexico City mentioned. Corroboration for this testimony is found in a letter Mrs. Payne wrote her mother shortly after she and Marina Oswald had returned to Irving on September the 24th in which she stated that Marina Oswald was again living with her temporarily and that Oswald was job hunting. When Oswald arrived at the Payne home on October the 4th, he continued his deception by telling Mrs. Payne, in his wife's presence, that he had been unsuccessful in finding employment. At Oswald's request, Marina Oswald remained silent. Marina Oswald lived with Ruth Payne through the birth of her second daughter, on October the 20th, 1963, and until the assassination of President Kennedy. During this period, Oswald obtained a room in Dallas and found employment in Dallas, but spent weekends with his family at the Payne home. On November the 1st and 5th, Ruth Payne was interviewed by agents of the FBI who were investigating Oswald's activities since his return from the Soviet Union, as set forth in greater detail in Chapter 8. She did not then know Oswald's address in Dallas. She was not asked for, nor did she volunteer, Oswald's telephone number in Dallas, which she did know. She advised the bureau agent to whom she spoke of Oswald's periodic weekend visits, and she informed him that Oswald was employed at the Texas School Book Depository Building. On November the 10th, Ruth Payne discovered a draft of Oswald's letter, written the day before to the Soviet embassy in Washington, in which he indicated that he had journeyed to Mexico City and conferred with a, quote, comrade Kostein in the embassy of the Soviet Union, Mexico City, Mexico, unquote. This letter is discussed later in this chapter. Mr. and Mrs. Payne testified that although they initially assumed the letter was a figment of Oswald's imagination, the letter gave Mrs. Payne considerable misgivings. She determined that if the FBI agents returned, she would deliver to them the copy of a draft of the letter, which are known to Oswald, she had made. However, the agents did not return before the assassination. On November the 19th, Mrs. Payne learned that Oswald was living in his Dallas rooming house under an assumed name. She did not report this to the FBI. Because, as she testified, she, quote, had no occasion to see them and did not think it important enough to call them after that until the 23rd of November. Unquote. The commission has thoroughly investigated the background of both Payne's. Mrs. Payne was born Ruth Hyde in New York City on September the 8th, 1932. Her parents moved to Columbus, Ohio in the late 1930s. They were divorced in 1961. Ruth Payne graduated from Antioch College in 1955. While in high school, she first became interested in Quaker activities. She and her brother became Quakers in 1951. In 1952, following completion of her sophomore year at Antioch College, she was a delegate to two Friends conferences in England. At the time the Paynes met, in 1955, Mrs. Payne was active in the work of the Young Friends Committee of North America, which, with the cooperation of the Department of State, was making an effort to lessen the tensions between Soviet Russia and the United States by means of the stimulation of contacts and exchange of cultures between citizens of the two nations through pen-pal correspondence and exchanges of young Russians and Americans. It was during this period that Mrs. Payne became interested in the Russian language. Mrs. Payne participated in a Russian American student exchange program sponsored by the Young Friends Committee of North America, and has participated in the pen pal phase of the activities of the Young Friends Committee. She has corresponded until recently with a school teacher in Russia. Although her active interest in the Friends program for the lessening of East-West tension ceased upon her marriage in December 1957, she has continued to hold to the tenets of the Quaker faith. Michael Payne is the son of George Lyman Payne and Ruth Forbes Payne, now Ruth Forbes Young, wife of Arthur Young of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His parents were divorced when he was four years of age. His father, George Lyman Payne, is an architect and resides in California. Michael Payne testified that during his late grammar and early high school days, his father participated actively in the Trotskyite faction of the communist movement in the United States and that he attended some of those meetings. He stated that his father, with whom he has had little contact throughout most of his life, has not influenced his political thinking, He said that he has visited his father four or five times in California since 1959, but their discussions did not include the subject of communism. Since moving to Irving, Texas in 1959, he has been a research engineer for Bell Helicopter Company in Fort Worth. Mr. Payne has security clearance for his work. He has been a long-time member of the American Civil Liberties Union. Though not in sympathy with rightist political aims, he has attended a few meetings of far-right organizations in Dallas for the purpose, he testified, of learning something about those organizations and because he, quote, was interested in seeing more communication between the right and the left, unquote. The Commission has conducted a thorough investigation of the Paines' finances and is satisfied that their income has been from legitimate and traceable sources and that their expenditures were consistent with their income and for normal purposes. Although in the course of their relationship with the Oswalds, the Paines assumed expenses for such matters as food and transportation with a value of approximately $500 dollars, They made no direct payments to and received no monies or valuables from the Oswalds. Although prior to November the 22nd, Mrs. Payne had information relating to Oswald's use of an alias in Dallas, his telephone number and his correspondence with the Soviet embassy, which she did not pass on to the FBI, her failure to have come forward with this information must be viewed within the context of the information available to her at that time. There is no evidence to contradict her testimony that she did not then know about Oswald's attack on General Walker, the presence of the rifle on the floor of her garage, Oswald's ownership of a pistol, or the photograph of Oswald displaying the firearms. She thus assumed that Oswald, though a difficult and disturbing personality, was not potentially violent and that the FBI was cognizant of his past history and current activities. Moreover, it is from Mrs. Payne herself that the commission has learnt that she possessed the information which she did have. Mrs. Payne was forthright with the agent of the FBI, with whom she spoke in early November 1963, providing him with sufficient information to have located Oswald at his job if he had deemed it necessary to do so, and a failure to have taken immediate steps to notify the Bureau of the additional information does not, under the circumstances, appear unusual. Throughout the Commission's investigation, Ruth Payne has been completely cooperative, voluntarily producing all correspondence, memoranda and other written communications in her possession that had passed between her and Marina Oswald, both before and after November 22, 1963. The Commission has had the benefit of Mrs Payne's 1963 date book and calendar and her address book and telephone notation book, in both of which appear many entries relating to her activities with the Oswalds. Other material of purely personal nature was also voluntarily made available. The Commission has found nothing in the Paine's background, activities or finances which suggests disloyalty to the United States and it has concluded that Ruth and Michael Payne were not involved in any way with the assassination of President Kennedy. A fuller narrative of the social contacts between the Oswalds and the various persons of the Dallas-Fort Worth community is incorporated in Chapter 7, and the testimony of all members of the group who testified before the commission is included in the printed record which accompanies the report. The evidence establishes that the Oswalds' contacts with these people were originated and maintained under normal and understandable circumstances. The files maintained by the FBI contain no information indicating that any of the persons in the Dallas-Fort Worth community with whom Oswald associated were affiliated with any communist, fascist or other subversive organization. During the course of this investigation, The Commission has found nothing which suggests the involvement of any member of the Russian-speaking community in Oswald's preparations to assassinate President Kennedy. Political Activities Upon Return to the United States Upon his return from the Soviet Union, Oswald had dealings with the Communist Party USA, the Socialist Workers' Party and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and he also had minor contacts with at least two other organizations with political interests. For the purpose of determining whether Oswald received any advice, encouragement or assistance from these organizations in planning or executing the assassination of President Kennedy, the Commission has conducted a full investigation of the nature and extent of Oswald's relations with them. The Commission has also conducted an investigation to determine whether certain persons and organisations expressing hostility to President Kennedy prior to the assassination had any connection with Lee Harvey Oswald or with the shooting of the President. Communist Party USA – Socialist Workers' Party In August of 1962, Oswald subscribed to The Worker, a publication of the Communist Party USA. He also wrote the Communist Party to obtain pamphlets and other literature which, the evidence indicates, were sent to him as a matter of course. Oswald also attempted to initiate other dealings with the Communist Party USA, but the organisation was not especially responsive. From New Orleans, he informed the party of his activities in connection with the Fair Play for Cuba committee, discussed below. Submitting membership cards in his fictitious chapter to several party officials. In a letter from Arnold S. Johnson, Director of the Information and Lecture Bureau of the Party, Oswald was informed that although the Communist Party had no organizational ties with the committee, the party issued much literature which was quote important for anybody who is concerned about developments in Cuba. In September nineteen sixty three, Oswald inquired how he might contact the party when he relocated in the Baltimore Washington area as he said he planned to do in October. And Johnson suggested in a letter of September the nineteenth that he, quote, get in touch with us here, New York, and we will find some way of getting in touch with you in that city, Baltimore. Unquote. However, Oswald had also written asking whether, quote, handicapped as it were, by his past record, he could still compete with anti-progressive forces above ground, or whether, in your opinion, he should always remain in the background, i.e. underground, unquote. And in the September 19 letter received the reply that, quote, often it is advisable for some people to remain in the background, not underground, unquote. In a letter postmarked November the 1st, Oswald informed the party that he had moved to Dallas and reported his attendance at a meeting at which General Walker had spoken and at a meeting of the American Civil Liberties Union. He asked Johnson for the party's general view of the latter organization and, quote, to what degree, if any, he should attempt to heighten its progressive tendencies, unquote. According to Johnson, this letter was not received by the Communist Party until after the assassination. At different times, Oswald also wrote the Worker and the Hall-Davis Defense Committee enclosing samples of his photographic work and offering to assist in preparing posters. He was told that, His kind offer was most welcomed and from time to time we shall call on you, unquote. But he was never asked for assistance the correspondence between oswald and the communist party and all other organizations is printed in the record accompanying this report when oswald applied for a visa to enter cuba during his trip to mexico city sonora silvia duran the cuban consular employee who dealt with oswald wrote on the application that oswald said he was a member of the communist party and that he had, quote, displayed documents in proof of his membership, unquote. When Oswald went to Mexico, he is believed to have carried his letters from the Soviet embassy in Washington and from the Communist Party in the United States, his 1959 passport, which contained stamps showing that he had lived in Russia for two and a half years, his Russian work permit, his Russian marriage certificate membership cards and newspaper clippings purporting to show his role in the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and a prepared statement of his qualifications as a Marxist. Because of the mass of papers Oswald did present showing his affinity for communism, some in the Russian language which was foreign to Sonora Duran and because further investigation, discussed below, indicated that Oswald was not a member of the party. Sonora Duranz's notation was probably inaccurate. Upon his arrest after the assassination, Oswald attempted to contact John J. Apt, a New York attorney, to request Apt to represent him. Apt was not in New York at the time, and he was never reached in connection with representing Oswald. Apt has testified that he, at no time, had any dealings with Oswald and that prior to the assassination, he had never heard of Lee Harvey Oswald. After his return from the Soviet Union, Oswald also carried on a limited correspondence with the Socialist Workers' Party. In October 1962, he attempted to join the party, but his application was not accepted since there was then no chapter in the Dallas area. Oswald also wrote the Socialist Workers' Party, offering his assistance in preparing posters. From this organization, too, he received the response that he might be called upon if needed. He was asked for further information about his photographic skills, which he does not appear to have ever provided. Oswald did obtain literature from the Socialist Workers' Party, however, and in December 1962 he entered a subscription to the affiliated publication, The militant apparently in march of 1963 oswald wrote the party of his activities and submitted a clipping from his letter in response he was told that his name was being sent to the young socialist alliance for further correspondence but the files of the alliance apparently contain no reference to oswald neither the letter nor the clipping which oswald sent has been located Investigation by the Commission has produced no plausible evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald had any other significant contacts with the Communist Party USA, the Socialist Workers' Party, or with any other extreme leftist political organization. The FBI and other federal security agencies have made a study of their records and files and contacted numerous confidential informants of the agencies and have produced no such evidence. The Commission has questioned persons who, as a group, knew Oswald during virtually every phase of his adult life, and from none of these came any indication that Oswald maintained a surreptitious relationship with any organization. Arnold S. Johnson, of the American Communist Party, James T. Torme, Executive Secretary of the Hall-Davis Defense Committee, and Farrell Dobbs, Secretary of the Socialist Workers' Party, Voluntarily appeared before the Commission and testified under oath that Oswald was not a member of these organisations, and that a thorough search of their files had disclosed no records relating to Oswald other than those which they produced for the Commission. The material that has been disclosed is in all cases consistent with other data in the possession of the Commission. End of Section 28